Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Ole Isaacson, who works on basic and clinical research to prevent and treat Parkinson's disease and related neurological and age disorders. He's the founding director of the Neural Regeneration Research Institute at McLean Hospital, professor of neurology and neuroscience at Harvard Medical School, professor of neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital, and was elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He is the author or co-author of over 300 scientific research publications in neuroscience and neurology and three books in his field. Welcome, Ole. Happy to be here. Uh, I know that you have done a tremendous amount of research in uh, neuroscience and neurology, uh, and we picked a few papers uh, for us to have, have a discussion and, uh, and one of them is entitled Novel Results and Concepts Emerging from Lipid Cell Biology Relevant to Degenerative Brain Aging and Disease, in which you say, while rare familial forms of proteinopathy can cause Parkinson's disease, Lewy body dementia, and age-related dementias, recent in-depth studies of lipid disturbances in the majority of the common forms of these uh, diseases, instead suggest a primary pathogenesis in lipid pathways. So, so this is different from conventional wisdom, isn't it? Would you like to talk a bit about your research direction here? Yes, uh, that's right. The uh, conventional wisdom has told us that what you see in a brain at autopsy is, is the problem. So, what we see in Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease uh, pathology is usually some protein aggregates. Uh, in the case of Parkinson's disease, they're called Lewy bodies, made of uh, uh, aggregates of uh, alpha-synuclein. Yeah. And in Alzheimer's disease, we see amyloid beta. But um, our research, rather than uh, the protein aggregating being the cause of the disease, uh, it may be that more underlying factors drive that. It could even be a compensatory uh, reaction 
that the brain cells do. And so consequently, if there are other underlying causes, you would need to uh, fix those problems first. Right. So, so, so uh, in, in terms of the lipid issues, um, are, there, are there specific areas that you are, you're looking at? What types of lipids and you know, what the mechanism might be? Yeah, so it was a surprising uh, medical discovery uh, about a decade ago that um, in Parkinson's disease, the greatest risk factor is actually carriers of mutation that we usually associate with lysosomal storage diseases. Mm. So lysosomal storage diseases come from, of course, the the lysosome in the cell. There are about 60, 65 hydrolases in there that break down various lipids, usually glycolipids. Yeah. So very surprisingly, uh, in, in clinical observations, rather than genetic studies, they found that parents of these children usually have lysosomal storage disease, or even grandparents, mm. showed a tenfold increased risk of Parkinson's. And it turned out that while we know that these diseases cause massive fat and lipid accumulation throughout the body, usually um, the average life expectancy is just a few years. Hmm. In these patients, we instead saw that a slight reduction, you know, technically it's 50%, right? So one gene lost and one functional in the carrier, yes. in the heterozygous. But they then presented with a slight increase in this lipid species, glycolipid. And our work and others have indicated in model systems uh, and in human tissue that um, such lipid increases, then drive this classic accumulation of proteins that most people have focused on for the last hundred years. Hmm. So, so for my understanding, Ole, so the, the lipids, um, so w- will we get any kind of signals uh, from, you know, the typical metabolic syndrome, cholesterol elevation and things like that? Uh, is, is there any relationship there? Well, technically, yes, in the organs of interest, right? So, whereas, you know, in the, in the form where there you have, for example, Gaucher's disease, which we have studied, yeah. which is then the childhood syndrome, you, you lose a gene called GVA, which metabolizes glycolipids. You have a 5 to 50-fold increase in those mm. lipid species in the blood and the, and, the, and the brain and the liver in particular. But with the one allele, we, we were told in medical school that, you know, having just one dysfunctional gene doesn't matter. But I think we missed the point that over time, small differences can make, uh, you know, a long-term effect. So what you see, we see in brain about a, a 25 to 30% increase in those substrates. And I remember I just mentioned there are 5 to 50-fold in the childhood version. Yeah. So we can measure some of that in the blood. It's not very much, uh, mm. but it's still it's still in the range where we can pick it up. Okay. Okay. So there isn't, you know, sufficient power in terms of a diagnostic, early diagnostic. Uh, You say in the paper, novel research needs to focus on the interactions between neurons and and glia as an interdependent system that attempts to regulate lipid and protein changes. Uh, Right. Yeah. So, right. This is... um, Stemming from work where uh, we realized that these lipid and, for that matter, protein uh, changes in, in brain usually is associated with changes also in, 
the supporting cells of the brain uh, called glia. These are also called astrocytes, which is usually a support function cell that has a lot of metabolic help to the cell, including lipid transport you know, from blood to the neuron. And the other cell that many people have heard about is the microglia. It's the immune cell that actually resides in your brain, even from birth, and divides and, and keeps local immune functions uh, going. And uh, the microglia can kill off neurons, actually, if they're infected, or uh, as you see in age-related disorders, they probably monitor the fine contacts in the brain called synapses. So if a cell is slightly dysfunctional, mm. it's almost like the microglia literally is, um, is checking out the function and actually almost uh, phagocytizes a piece of the cell to see what, what health the cell is in. So what we have found over the last uh, decade or so is that the neurons by themselves usually uh, degenerate in concert or in, in a synergy with these other cells, the astrocytes and the microglia. And that's a field that existed more like a, a very academic field that I, I feel in the last five years and certainly in the next 10 years that's going to come. There may be the major uh, uh, systems that we will address to understand uh, when nerve cells actually degenerate. Okay, okay. And so um, inflammation is sort of the foundational uh, issue here, right? You say uh, lipid disturbances are significant. Uh, yeah, when lipid disturbances are significant, they can lead to inflammatory reactions and eventually synaptic pathobiology. Right. And so, so there are multiple things going on. <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I'm happy you're asking the question because I think in the previous few decades uh, we've been very neuronocentric. And that means that people have studied uh, neurons that they see degenerate, which obviously is the cell that communicates, uh, you know, uh, the function of the brain. But it really becomes an issue, even in the research we do. If you isolate and study neurons on themselves, mm. there's even some evidence that they will pick up the glial functions. And if you're a uh, student of biology and evolution, you realize that what the neuron does by itself then is to adopt the glial function. And so your readout will not be correct. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the drug development or medic med medicines development have not sufficiently taken this into account. And the complexity that you mentioned, which for sure is, is uh, uh, very prominent in the brain, have kind of um, led to that the oversimplified version of, you know, if a neuron is sick or you overexpress uh, in the ner nerve cell a genetic change, you rarely see the interplay um, that you see in the brain, both when we study patient brains, um, sort of post-mortem, or what you see in cell culture when we have all three cell types present. Right, right, yeah. Uh, because it's so complex, uh, I guess the general trend in medicine uh, has been, correct me if I'm wrong, has been to look for symptoms and, and attempt to do some sort of symptomatic treatment uh, on the hopes that it's actually going to take care of the foundational issue. Uh, but but you, are, you are digging deeper than that. Yeah, there are two issues there, Gil. And, and one is, of course, that, uh, for example, in Parkinson's disease, uh, we have studied this in great detail. The brain is an amazing adaptive organ. So there's one cell, there's about a million cells on each side of our brains where we're born called the dopamine neuron. 
and it just happens to be a transmitter called dopamine. There are synapses that then you know reach uh, the front of the brain, and when you have those synapses working well, you can initiate movement. But actually, you can initiate movement uh, and losing those synapses up to about 70%. Mm-hmm. You have when you have 30% left of that system, uh, the the system breaks down homeostatically, and you yeah. cannot no longer initiate movements. You get Parkinson's disease. And so what that illustrates to you is interconnectivity that drives symptoms. So at that point, the brain has already been degenerated for quite a long time. The average age of onset for Parkinson's is well above age 60. And when you're 75 years of age or even 80, 90, up to 5, 10% of all people are going to have uh, Parkinson's at those very advanced ages. What I'm trying to say is that these adaptive symptoms, adaptive changes lead to that we treat very late. Yeah. And L-DOPA was a famous treatment for Parkinson's disease. And we're working on more and different modalities to restore those synapses now. But like for Alzheimer's disease, there is a preceding part, mm. like actually for cardiovascular disease, where we have been much more effective in understanding, like you mentioned um, previously, cholesterol, for example, something you can measure. Blood pressure is something you can measure. But for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, we're just now, I think, putting uh, the emphasis on biomarkers. And there is now recent work that I find very encouraging in studying various markers in blood even that then are sort of um, sipping out of the brain or, or coming out of the brain through various uh, systems like CSF and then through the blood yes. that can illustrate that the brain cells are under you know, physiological, pathological pressure. Right, right. Yeah, it's very interesting, Ori. So the 30% sort of redundancy, uh, it sounds to me, in the brain, when you hit that threshold, that's when you really pick up uh, symptoms. That's when you identify. There used to be a notion that you use only, I don't know, 20% of your brain or something like that. That has been, I think, debunked. Um, but uh, the, the redundancy uh, in this thirty percent redundancy that we see—I don't know if redundancy is the right term there, uh, Ole. But um, you know, what is the? How do you explain that? Um, this is clearly not just sitting there, right, waiting to be no. uh, used. Uh, so, yeah. what no. exactly happens there? Well, it's a great question. I, I rarely get to um, that question asked because it's a little bit beyond the, the professional academic level, but uh, I, I believe you're right in saying that it was in a way debunked because, you know, 25% of the glucose you use on a given moment are going to the brain, which is only three pounds of your weight, no matter what weight you have. Right. But it illustrates how highly metabolic the brain is. Now, uh, the synapses that are the contact points are using most of that energy, metabolic glucose usually, called glucose metabolic study. So when you see a brain pattern, and this is also actually linked to what we talked about in Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, the glucose use, the metabolic focus shifts, but it's more like a map, right? So the brain compensates to try to initiate function. And by that we mean, let's take the example of Parkinson's disease. So the brain, and I once had to teach a lot of medical school students, and one of my professors says, just imagine you the brain really is there to initiate action. So you need to initiate a movement that you can't do in part. The brain works very much in a, as a concert. So 
it's just not that dopamine neuron we talked about. That's linked up to many other systems in, in the brain, deep brain structures and the cortex. And when you start losing those particular dopamine neurons, yeah. this compensatory mechanism, which I would rather call them a parallel function mechanism, right. means that you it's a beautiful system because it actually tries to execute something, a thought or an action, right, or a movement by integrating other circuitry. And it really is, I know you're interested in systems, generally uh, a system that's built to execute. So you recruit more cortical regions when you have Parkinson's disease that try to, in the so-called pre-mode regions, to activate those movements that are not coming through. Mm. So it's, a, in a way, a very elegant system and very adaptive biological system to try to do this thing. However, when you past that threshold of dopamine fiber and synapse loss that the other system can complement. Right, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, this is such an interesting area. As you know, um, you know, neuroscience and computer science um, are, are getting closer together. So, you know, we have this deep learning networks and right. to, to train deep learning networks, one of the techniques used is called dropouts. Uh, which is essentially randomly dropping neurons in the various layers in the network. And if you do that, um, if you do that, you know, we have a higher chance of getting a more generalized neural network. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a concept basically saying, you know, what, what you need to do is to, 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 to train such a system is to handicap it in some ways and let the other um, active things to basically learn from that handicap and then put that mm -hmm. together. I don't know if there's any connection, but uh, well, that's interesting. There is very clear evidence that what you're saying is true during development. So, for, for example, if your brain is injured very early in life, yeah. uh, regions that are lost, even language can move from its normal locations to be operational elsewhere. And that speaks to this issue which we I certainly don't study it, but it's something that's generally true, is that the brain is really a functional organ, and many of the systems we, that are linked up will try to function and, and build, so to speak, yeah. to operate optimally, even in the adverse event, which is then later in life, usually. Uh, or with brain damage, we know that with stroke patients, they tend to recover over time. And that's also the classical term of, of um, using tissue for, using brain tissue for uh, solving uh, brain function the best the brain can. Right, right. Yeah, you have a, uh, a related paper here I want to touch on. So lipid and immune abnormalities causing age-dependent neurodegeneration and Parkinson's disease, where you describe pathogenic concepts and factors, in particular glycolipid abnormalities that create cell dysfunction and synaptic loss in a neurodegenerative diseases. We talked about a little bit about that already. Uh, but this this glycolipids are very important, right? From a from an immune response perspective, so that is a connection. That's true, and and this is emerging work. So uh, this is something which we are acquiring data on and, and testing our hypothesis. But yeah. a little bit like I mentioned previously, um, rather than just looking at sort of what this aggregating protein tends to do, not just in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, but also in ALS and uh, Huntington's disease and, and a number of frontotemporal dementia. Um, lipids tend to play many roles that haven't really been studied much. 
And they are, uh, as you point out, they are part of the immune system. And many of the receptors that are activated, and we know there are receptors for bacteria, we call those toll-like receptors, toll-like 4, and for viruses, which is very uh, pertinent now with COVID, they have yeah. toll-like receptor 3. And right. TREM is another gene that's involved in, in risk for Alzheimer's disease. So many of those receptors are activated by lipids. So our team and some others are looking at these interplays mm. where the cells are actually, in a way, looking from an evolutionary perspective, probably, at activation of these receptors as a threat. Obviously, if a virus attaches to an immune cell that we know will generate something called cytokine. Mm. And so this disturbance in the lipids that was not really studied much until the last decade, and, and the funny thing here, if you really follow the world on Alzheimer's disease, one of the biggest risk factors for Alzheimer's disease is also a lipid transporter called APOE. Mm. Now, from my perspective, this is my scientific opinion, is that instead of working on what APOE actually does, which is transport lipid from astrocytes to neurons and from various other components, even from microglia to neurons back and forth, just like APOE does in the rest of the body by uh, cholesterol efflux, and we know that heart disease and inflammation are tightly linked, right? And so that's we all you know, monitor cholesterol and blood pressure for those reasons. But uh, my point here is that when we have this lipid disturbances that I described, I think they really can wreak havoc with the immune system. Yeah. And uh, the opportunities that maybe for new medicines is really trying to understand that interplay rather than this aggregated protein, which has been sort of a broken record in drug discovery for the last decade or so. Right, right. Yeah, so, so I want to get into that a little bit. So uh, I don't know if this is work in progress, Ole, or you've published this, but the consequences of coronavirus-induced cytokine storm are associated with neurological diseases, which may be preventable, you say. Uh, you say that in the wake of the Spanish flu pandemic starting in 1918, over a million people who survived the viral infection then subsequently developed Parkinson's disease. And uh, this was dramatized in the movie Awakenings uh, with Robin Williams as the doctor and Robert De Niro right. as the patient. Um, and um, so there is some anecdotal, there was some anecdotal information around people, um, you know, loss of smell and, and those types of things after they recover from COVID. But I think there is data now, increasingly more data uh, that shows some sort of tactical uh, neurological issues that recovered patients are getting into. Uh, but but what you're talking about here is actually a long-term potential effect, right? Yeah, so I, I wish I'd never ha had to use my studies for, for the current COVID situation. But <laughs> as you mentioned, it was really remarkable for me being a, a student of this disease, right? And uh, trying to understand the basis for the 1918-19 uh, uh, Spanish flu was something that just became a scientific interest of mine, yeah. particularly in trying to understand this microglial uh, inflammatory situation. So we worked over, over a decade ago on various ways in which we tested whether we had inflammatory molecules, and they happen to be called cytokines here. There are a long list of them, TNF-alpha, IL-1 beta for mentioning a couple, that are... A, sit around in any inflammatory situation also in the brain. And we tested the hypothesis actually with the Spanish flu as a background to see, well, 
if there is a dysregulation of the immune system, will mm. we get more cell death? And we, we found that. And actually, uh, almost a decade ago now, we started testing the idea that viruses uh, could activate the immune system in an inappropriate way. And again, create sort of, if you will, double the probability that the nerve cell will die. Mm. And it's not trivial because if you think of the brain as constantly brain cells that we have to retain for, say, 80 or 90 years, hopefully, they don't divide, that they are exposed daily to other stressors like free radical and optical stress. So in our experiment, what we did was to first deliver a viral synthetic, which is called uh, poly-IC, which activates the RNA-driven um, receptor, which is the same, actually, as RNA viruses seen with COVID. Yeah. When the immune cells see activation, they drive these cytokines up. And then we infused an oxidative stress signal and showed that cells died twice as many or twice as fast. So that would simulate what happened during the Spanish flu, we feel. And we were also able to pinpoint the cytokine IL-1-beta receptor uh, agonist that we could block by a existing medicine that's out on the market, practical rheumatoid arthritis. And so we practically proved, and so did a couple of other teams in the world, that there is this vulnerability issue that comes from cytokines. Now, if you, sure, you follow the, the original descriptions from deaths of patients in China, yeah. there was this interesting fact that when they had stopped shedding viruses, so presumably the immune system, or at least had some control in reducing the, the viral load, that they would sometimes be even discharged from hospital but then die, what we call fulminant, right? In a mm. crisis, which looked very much like uh, a cytokine storm. So, it, you know, the body in those situations will overreact. Mm. And instead of fighting off viruses, there's sort of a, a, a wild inflammatory response going on. And so mm. what we see in patients is particularly not, not, not proven for, for, for COVID, but you do see lots of loss of sense of smell, which also, incidentally, is what you see in Parkinson's patients early. So it can also yeah. be true for other neurological diseases, but there are definitely evidence that the brain may have an increased inflammation. Mm -hmm. So we are concerned, looking forward, that this increased vulnerability that, in the case of Spanish flu, gave encephalitis, so a severe inflammation of the brain, so that type of inflammation may set people up for a more rapid decline leading to these diseases. So I wrote a piece that just highlighted this medical community and, and showed what our previous work had shown, that if you reduce uh, cytokines, uh, uh, then you may actually prevent some of these degenerative events. Yeah, so, so from my understanding, um, so the, the mouse model... So the synthetic viral RNA is delivered directly to the brain? Yeah, so in that case, we, we, we have done also systemic, meaning if you yeah. inject it right systemically. But we were more interested in proof of concept. So we had the virus delivered, uh, synthetic RNA, I should say, of a virus, right, delivered right into the vulnerable brain region that dies, the cells die off in Parkinson's. But I had colleagues in other universities <clears throat> who actually injected the virus uh, or got them through the gut system, which is actually how we usually get the virus, right? We, we inhale it, but we also swallow it, usually in, in, with flu viruses. So in those cases, the virus would travel up through the, um, 
the peripheral nervous system and reach the brain and actually uh, start to show those effects again on increased alpha-synuclein. And, and proteins that are, I feel are reactive to these um, inflammatory agents. Yeah, I had a conversation with uh, uh, Dr. Fry uh, from Health Partners and University of Minnesota a few days ago. And, uh-huh. you know, we were talking about the intranasal delivery of uh, insulin and other uh, stem, stem cells into the brain. Uh, and you can essentially bypass the blood-brain barrier intranasally uh, to get into the brain. And, um, you know, also people get uh, things like the amoeba in there if you <laughs> swim in dirty water and things like that, right? So, so the, it is quite likely uh, something like COVID uh, could get into the brain, right? Yeah, I'm not um, sure whether it's a very common route, frankly, yeah. because uh, still there are, are many membranes which you have to pass through, but certainly it is possible to to have access to the blood uh, yes. to some of those uh, microcapillary systems. Mm-hmm. The more uh, common variant of, of flu infection is through uh, the respiratory tract and through the gut. Right. So, so when it's in there, uh, in the mouse model at least, uh, it could elicit a progressive increase in cytokines in the vulnerable brain region. So just like the, that Chinese patient, um, it, it's sort of, so the, I, I guess the patient recovered and then died after a week or something like that? Those were the, the descriptions, more in, in the journalistic uh, arena, right? There were uh, very broad um, description of this in the in the New York Times, but I think uh, generally speaking, yes, it's not something uh, that happens acutely. But it depends what you mean by acute. But something at the very end of um, of the disease process, and there's been some effort, even with uh, broad, you know, anti-inflammatory drugs or even corticosteroids, to try to taper that off. And um, I think that's uh, sort of a proof of concept. But as you mentioned, in our studies we saw the peaks around uh, 10 to 14 days after the exposure to the virus, right? So this cytokine activation is is quite um, extended, and it doesn't always correlate with the presence of the virus, which incidentally, I think, has created confusion because people think of taking anti-inflammatory drugs during the most, I mean, you know, people are in the hospital, it's really an, an emergency, but I believe it is, curbing that immune response uh, at the end, which is probably the most helpful. Hmm. So, so, so if you look at the long-term effects, um, you know, would, would you differentiate between people who have had a severe um, reaction to COVID, um, you know, compared to people who are asymptomatic? What, who are more likely... Um, uh, if you know if this mechanism could work, just like Spanish flu, who are more likely to be uh, to have an issue like Parkinson's disease in the long run? I don't think anybody knows that. Yes. Uh, I fall back on the genetic studies in this case. The, the surprising finding in the mid '90s was that something called HLA regions, which are you know organizing immune responses generally in the body, were highly associated with risk for for example, heart disease, but also other neurological diseases. And remember, autoimmune diseases like MS are also in the same region. So unfortunately, it's probably a gene 
environment interaction. So here the environment is the virus and the environment that's pathological is the cytokine storm. So different patients will have different responses. And to go back to our own data, when we infuse the poly-IC, which is this uh, toll-like receptor for, for an RNA virus, we also see peaks in, in molecules that are associated with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and ALS, incidentally. So I think of it more like a stress syndrome for the, for the brain. Mm. So if you have any other uh, concurrent situations, so let's say you're above 50 or in your 60s, some very severe cytokine storm would probably give a little bit of a lasting loss of synapses and, and other things. And the, th the interesting thing about smell, right, which seems to affect all ages of people who have COVID, is that many of the patients who lost sense of smell, that's now documented in scientific literature, have not recovered the smell. Mm -hmm. I find that particularly troubling because if you really look at pharmacies, there's even a smell test developed for patients. And many, many scientists and clinicians believe it's a little bit of a, of a detective, uh, de de medical detective way to obtain the people at risk. And I would be very concerned, or at least concerned, about people who have that loss of smell. And hopefully they will uh, have some kind of evaluation by uh, physicians over their uh, lifetime to see at least report that they had a loss of smell period transiently and then maybe long term and those would be the patients that I would focus on if there weren't any other markers such as blood cytokine or or you know also dysfunction many people report confusion and um, you and I spoke in the beginning of this uh, podcast about compensatory mechanisms but it's remarkable for those who are in the field that when people have inflammatory events um, or inflammation uh, then you know it also has an impact on cognition. Hmm. So, so what would you suggest from an intervention perspective as we go through this pandemic now uh, to reduce the risk of um, Parkinson's or something like that in the future? Uh, what would be the intervention that, that you would suggest? Well, you know, uh, as, as usual, it's hard to yeah. make recommendations, and I don't work as a physician, so I, I can't take that responsibility for individual <laughs> patients. But I can right. tell you that when uh, we have looked at this in the past, the remarkable thing, and this is a scientific fact, is that uh, in, a, in, in one of the studies, uh, I believe it was also linked to the framing and heart studies, epidemiologists found that people who took ibuprofen, yeah. Advil or other ibuprofen, uh, they were less likely over a period of years to develop Parkinson's. Hmm. And there are other remarkable studies, so that's Advil. There's also remarkable studies which you can't then recommend uh, because it happens to be a very specific drug for Crohn's disease, but hmm. people who took something called TNF-alpha antibody, Enbrel, which is a remarkable drug for rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease, but they also uh, developed a lower risk or Parkinson's So I think from a pragmatic point of view, without too much speculation, uh, like for heart disease, so it's not you know, a close neighbor to this kind of inflammatory mechanism for, for coronary, coronary heart disease, that people who, who take low doses of, of some kind of anti-inflammatory drug may be a little bit protected, but there is no specific study uh, for COVID. So, you know, with all normal caveats in medical research. 
this will be something that needs to be tested mm. and tested uh, probably in a very serious way by physicians and others were interested. And I believe, you know, speaking about this and writing about it may drive uh, physicians to look for these uh, clues. Right, yeah. I mean, it also um, showcases, you know, from a policy perspective, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that we are dealing with some sort of a flu uh, is, is not right, isn't it? You mean because it has more widespread and but, long-term effects? Widespread and long-term potential yeah. effects, yeah. Right. And, um, you know, it's interesting because um, as we speak, there are, you know, there are conventional theories as you know, and there is a more early theory that then becomes convention. But I must say in, in the work we started in, in two, and we wrote up in the science paper in 2012, when the idea was that we felt that inflammatory events, you know, like CTE, chronic, uh, uh, you know, uh, tra- uh, TBI and, and traumatic brain injury chronically, yeah. um, is basically a repeat hit to the brain and to the tissue. And that they developed you know, the type of cell pathology that we see in Alzheimer's disease and mm. temporal dementia. And so we and others said, well, look at that. That's an inflammatory sequence. And we posited that viruses could simulate that. Mm. So it happens to be then, Jill, uh, that we try to understand these diseases as sort of a convergence on a few fundamental mechanisms and that we developed the medical tools to, first of all, see them, but also treat them effectively. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a bit like uh, building an airplane uh, in midair. <laughs> right now. I hope it's easier than that. <laughs> uh, so I want to close with uh, one of your other papers. So it says uh, experimental studies of mitochondrial function in in vitro and in vivo models relevant to Parkinson's disease genetic risk. So this is a totally different dimension, isn't it? Yes. Um, um, that it really is, but in that sense, um, it ties together what we've been talking about. If okay. you take the, the familial genetics, which is uh, remarkably, again, people often speak about the protein aggregation, and I'm, I'm eager to try to, to dissuade people to just focus on that, because actually there are maybe just a few hundred patients, families with that starting point, which I think is the end point, usually in, in aging. But mitochondrial genetics, tell us that if you have a dysfunction either in the mitochondria or actually breaking them down, mm. uh, we call it Parkinson uh, uh, and Pink one mutation, that happens to be a reason for these very vulnerable dopamine neurons to die. Mm. So what we frequently forget is many of these genetic uh, changes occur throughout your body, trillions and trillions of cells. But some populations of your cells, in this particular case, the dopaminergic neurons are very vulnerable. So what you find is that um, the dopaminergic neuron uh, is usually having a very high oxidative stress level at yeah. physiology. So you happen to have a neuron that has a phenotype of high oxidative stress. And so in Parkinson's, we find that any additional oxidative stress, for example, you know, pesticides, uh, and you may recall in the 1980s, the mm. famous story of, NPTP or people who had uh, designed a drug, um, a drug that were inhi- inhibiting complex one, which is part of your mitochondrial respiratory chain, that that happened to hit 
this vulnerable dopaminergic population harder than any other cell in the body. So it's sort of the tip of the iceberg thing. And so you kind of find that mitochondrial genetic as a mitochondrial dysfunction is particularly um, central to Parkinson's disease pathology. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the organ that we carry in our, in our head, uh, it, it's really sensitive. And yep. uh, nature seems to have done a pretty good job in trying to protect it from all sorts of, all sorts of stuff uh, that gets into the body. But, um, but as you say, there is a cumulative stress issue, right, um, that, that ultimately breaks it. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good um, uh, perception or, 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 or conclusion you're making because the understanding of the brain, like other parts of our body is understanding how you adapt and how you keep the system healthy for a long time. And I, I believe uh, rationally we will be able to be uh, educated on how to keep ourselves healthy uh, in sort of an aging concept, but also attack you know, very specific changes that are risk factor for any given individual, usually genetic. But maybe that's been overemphasized, I think, uh, in the last few decades. But these interactions that I mentioned between cell types how that play out and, and to get biomarkers to, like we expect for other diseases, to give you a diagnosis and, and maybe active uh, treatment to, to help prevent some. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can probably make better theories about the universe, but I think the brain is still going to uh, keep us uh, interested for a long time. <laughs> Hopefully. Excellent, Daole. Uh, this has been great. Um, thanks so much for spending time with me and uh, good luck with all your research. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.